Good morning. So we have been going through Jeremiah and we are getting close to the end now. And in fact, today is a is an incredibly pivotal point in the book of Jeremiah and studying the book of Jeremiah. And what I'm going to do today is, and we've done this once or twice before, where I summarize a few chapters rather than, as I usually do when I'm preaching through a book, we go word by word, verse by verse. But uh, today, we're, because Jeremiah is so long, and it, it, I, I said this at the beginning of studying Jeremiah, but some of you may have not may not have been here, like Daniel uh, in London, <laughs> but. Also, some of you may have forgotten because we've slept since then, uh, but Jeremiah is the longest book in the entire Bible by word count. And so when we think of the long books, we think of Psalms, um, we think of Leviticus, because if you've ever read Leviticus, you know why you think you might think that's long, uh, but it's, it's Jeremiah. And so back when I was preparing for Jeremiah and preparing to preach this and, and making my outline and summary I knew that if, if I were to preach word by word, verse by verse, that I would be preaching this book for 20 years. And nothing against that. Um, there are people who do that. However, I would like to, for us to, to be able to look at the whole counsel of God's word. And sometimes that means that we have to summarize some things. Now, what we're looking at today, much of it has come up in previous sermons. Uh, one of the most important chapters in Jeremiah is during this sermon, and we've already looked at it. Uh, we looked at one of the things back in the last Sunday of February, and one of these chapters on the last Sunday, I mean the first Sunday of March. And so we've seen some of this because we have, we have been going more by chronological order. Not perfectly by chronological order, um, but the first several sermons at least we, we looked at in, in a, in a, by time, by chronology. And so today, uh, what we're going to be looking at, as, as we've been studying how God, God's plan prevails, um, today we're going to look at how God blesses faith. And, and there's a subtitle here that uh, I've added this week, and it's God blesses faith and judges faithlessness. Because we see both of those in this passage. And as I usually preach, I go through and we'll look at a point. And then keep going and get to the next point and that kind of thing. But today, I'm going to give you two of the three points right up front. So the first two points of this sermon, before I even preach the word of it, is uh, number one, actions prove our faith or lack of it. Actions prove our faith or lack of it. So what we do doesn't save us. What we do shows if we're saved. Our actions and works don't save us, but if we're saved, there should be works. It should be proven with our life. And we're going to see examples of people on both sides of this state. We're going to see examples of people who have faith, and we're going to see examples of people who do not have faith, or have faith in the wrong thing, the wrong God, the wrong political system in, in Jeremiah, whatever it might be. And so, uh, with that said, number two... How, how do we know if we're living the right way? How do we know if our actions are appropriate? Well, and, and, and by the way, remember, our actions are just the product of our faith or lack of it. And so number two, we measure faith by God's word. Are we doing what he said to do? Are we being like him? Are we loving like him? And so specifically looking at the life of Jeremiah, we're going to see in this book, in these few chapters that we look at, we're going to see examples of people who had faith, and we're going to see examples of people who did not have faith. And so, with that said, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Jeremiah 34. Now, I'm not going to be reading much these first few chapters that I'm summarizing. Um, when we get to chapter 38, then we'll look at some, some a specific passage, and then we'll I'll summarize a little bit more, and we'll look at some more in 39. Uh, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk us through brief summaries of each chapter. So if you have your Bible, then I encourage you to follow along. And now, like I said, some of this we've already looked at. It will be review for some of you, but it will be brief. And I really strongly encourage you to, if, um, if you have time this week, or you know what, make time this week, to go ahead and read 
chapters 34 through 39. And if you do that, this, these summaries will help you in that. So first of all, in chapter 34, we're in, this is in 588 BC. Now, this is a little debatable, it could be 587, but we think it's 588. And if, if you look at the year Jerusalem was destroyed, the year the temple was destroyed, when Babylon invaded and successfully destroyed Jerusalem, most people think that that is 586 BC. So we're close to that, and we're going to see that actually in today's sermon. But in 588 BC, the people of Jerusalem, there was already pressure from the Babylonians. And you might see the word Chaldeans. We've looked at that word before. And those are the people who ruled Babylon during this time. So Babylonians, Chaldeans, they're kind of interchangeable words in Jeremiah because during this time, the Chaldeans ruled Babylon. All right. And so when we get to chapter 34, we see that, that um, God comes through Jeremiah and tells the people of Israel or Judah that they are supposed to free their slaves. Now, this is something that we have seen previously in the Old Testament where uh, God makes sure that all debts are forgiven, all slaves are forgiven at a certain time. Okay, after a certain amount of time, this happens. And so in Jeremiah chapter 34, the, the people of Judah listen. They free their slaves. This is an incredible act of faith when we haven't seen much obedience from the people of, of Jerusalem in this entire book. However, um, guess what they do after they freed their slaves? After a little while, they're like, you know what? We don't like this. Let's enslave them again. And they enslave them again. And so God brings the judgment. that he, he, he brings a proclamation of the judgment to come through Jeremiah once more. It's the same judgment that we have been hearing. That God is going to destroy Jerusalem He's going to destroy Judah just as he has already destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. It, it's going to be destroyed, and he tells them specifically why he's going to destroy them. And you, many of you can probably recite these reasons off the top of your head because we've looked at them so often in Jeremiah. Now, number one, above all, someone tell me what they were doing, the root cause of all their other sin. What were they doing that was wrong? Yeah, worshiping other gods. And the worship of other gods, and first of all, they're worshiping other gods because their hearts, they're just doing what's in their hearts. And what's in their hearts is not good. So we have to be healthy. I mean, healthy. We have to be careful to make sure our hearts are healthy in Christ. Um, because these people, of course, this is before Christ, but these people, their hearts were on selfish things. And they turned their hearts to these foreign gods because that lined up more with what they wanted rather than what God was saying. So they started worshiping these other gods. And anybody remember some of the evidence, uh, some of the things that God had against them that they were doing while they were worshiping these other gods? It, they don't have to be in order. Just throw some out. Anybody? Yeah, they were sacrificing their children to foreign gods, which God said, I never asked you to do that. I never required that. Anybody else remember any of the other things? So they, there were many things mentioned in Jeremiah, but the ones that are repeated, um, they're worshiping other gods. And then what did that look like? They were sacrificing their children to other gods. They were oppressing the foreigners, and they were neglecting the fatherless and the widows. And so we see, and they were shedding innocent blood in this place, which, or Jerusalem, Judah. And so... Um, here again, here's another thing that God has against them. He told them to release the slaves, and in chapter 34 they do it, but only for a brief time, and then they take them back. And Jeremiah comes with the judgment again, that God is going to destroy Jerusalem. And it's going to be soon now. It's, I, we're, we're two years away from it, if that. And so, in chapter 35, if you want to go ahead and look there... We're going to go backwards in time. Remember that this is not chrono chronological. So if we were just in 588, the number is going to get higher. But remember, before Christ, we're counting backwards. And so in around 599 B.C., Jeremiah, uh, God tells Jeremiah to go to the house of the Rechabites. And that's no relation to mosquito bites, just so you know. Uh, but he's told to go to the house of the Rechabites. 
Why did Ken just shake his head at my joke like that? I thought it was a classic myself. But anyway, he goes to the house of the Rechabites and uh, brings them back to the temple. And this is a clan whose, um, whose leader, many years ago, generations ago, had given them some specific commands that weren't, that didn't apply to uh, God's people in general. This was a specific clan, and they held these rules to honor what their ancestors told them. Now, we don't see in Scripture where they're, they're told they have to do this. They're choosing to do this. As How many of you have family traditions, right? And, and we, we, we don't have to do those family traditions. We do them because we're part of the family. And because they make us feel a part of this group. And so this clan, the Rechabites, did the same thing. And so Jeremiah brought them to the temple and he put some wine out. And he said, drink this. And they, they, or he offered it to them and they refused it. Because they had made it a commitment and an oath uh, to not drink alcohol. Now, long ago, their clan leader told them, do not drink this. And not only that, they also had a commitment not to farm. I could go with that one. <laughs> I, I grew up surrounded by farms and worked on some farms as a kid. And, uh, and so I, I'd be fine if I was a Rechabite and didn't have to farm or didn't get to drink. Uh, but this next one might be a little rough. They didn't get to live in houses either. And so uh, I don't know about that. But anyway, that, these are things that they did in their clan. And they refused Jeremiah's offer to have a drink there at the temple. And the reason that God told Jeremiah to go to the Rechabites and to offer them this was to make a point. Here are these faithful people who are listening to the, their ancestral father who has told them not to do these things. And God's people, Judah, the Israelites at this, at this point, the ones in the southern kingdom, will not listen to him. He is God. And he is telling them what he wants them to do. And they won't do it. So that's chapter 35 in 599 B.C. And then if we go backwards to chapter 36, and I say backwards, go forward to chapter 36, but backwards in time, uh, to 605 B.C., Jehoiakim, if you remember, Josiah was king when Jeremiah became a prophet. And Josiah was a good king, if, if you remember us talking about that at the beginning of this. Um, but it wasn't long after, before he died, when he went out against Pharaoh, uh, and he was killed in battle. And we see that this the succession. And we've talked about that in the order of it. But one of his sons was Jehoiakim. And in chapter 36, we see this time, and we've seen this before, for those of you who were here. Um, it, we looked at it with chapter 7 because chapter 7, 26, and 36 are about the same thing. And then 45 seems to be Jeremiah's encouragement to Barak in direct relation to this event. And so uh, 7, 26, 36, and 45 were all together. So here we are in chapter 36. And what we see is Jeremiah has written, he has asked Barak to write down the prophecy because Jeremiah is not allowed in the presence of the king. And write down the prophecy and take it to the king and it, it is, it's taken to the king and it's read to him and as someone is reading it to him Jehoiakim is cutting off the scroll that's been read and throwing it in the fire that's how much he dis disrespects God's word so how do we measure our faith by God's word are we obeying God's word are we living by it that was point number two and, and so far we have seen examples of point one, faith in the Rechabites, faithlessness in God's people. And here we see faithlessness in Jehoiakim. Not only is he not measuring his life by God's word, these prophecies that are being proclaimed to him, but he is disrespecting them so much that he's cutting them off and burning them. And we can judge him. We can say, how could he do something like that? But we philosophically do the same thing all the time where we read something in God's word and we know what we should do we know the changes that we should make in our life or maybe we don't even let ourselves go there we read something and we're like well that can't apply to me I'm just gonna keep reading right because there are many people who read their Bible every day and don't live it and so what are we doing in essence we're, we're reading something 
And rather than taking it in and meditating on the truth of it, filling our minds with, with God's word and his truth, and then applying that into our life, rather than doing that, we're we hear it, and rather than taking it in, we just keep going. Or worse, well, I don't know if it's worse, disobedience is disobedience. I think it's probably worse, I don't know. Another sermon for another day. But we take it in, we know what we need to do, and then we just blatantly don't do it. Or we know what we need to stop doing, and we keep doing it anyway. Now, if you do that, you're in good company, because the Apostle Paul says basically the same thing. I know what I ought to do, and I don't. But if we love Jesus, we should strive to obey him. And if, if we're faithful, it proves that there is a change that has already been made in us. It doesn't save us. It proves that we, we are saved. And who are we proving it to? We don't have to prove anything to God. He already knows. It proves it to ourselves. It testifies to ourselves. It testifies to the, to the lives of the people around us. It reflects the glory of God and his goodness and it draws other people into a relationship with him, these are the reasons why we should do that. And so we have examples of faithful people like the Rechabites, but we also have examples of people who not just lack faith, but just completely disrespect God, uh, like most of the Israelites during this time, and uh, even the kings and their priests and their prophets, which we've seen them teaching false doctrine, teaching false teachings, and uh, prophesying falsely. And so we get to chapter 37, and now we're going to start, we're moving back. Remember, we started in chapter 34 when they were supposed to be releasing the slaves, and that was 588 B.C., and that was just a couple of years before the destruction of Jerusalem. And now we're back there in chapter 37. And what happens is, is that uh, Babylon is fighting against Jerusalem. They're, they're trying to get in, trying to destroy it, and... Egypt, of all people, uh, and I speak that not presently, but biblically, uh, we, we know about Exodus and Moses and what happened in Egypt. And Egypt comes to the aid of Jerusalem. Ironically, the time when they shouldn't be coming to the aid of Jerusalem, they're coming to the aid of Jerusalem. And I say they shouldn't be coming to the aid of Jerusalem because God has already told Jerusalem, you have a choice. Surrender. And in, even individuals, if you surrender, you can safely go live in exile. Now, that's not a great choice, but it's better than the alternative, which is you don't surrender and God destroys the city and destroys those that are in it. And so, <clears throat> excuse me. So, Egypt comes to the aid of Judah, and Zedekiah, who is king at this point in 588, and we're going to see a lot more of Zedekiah coming. Now, note. Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. The temple is about to be destroyed. This is the last king. You know, of course, Jesus is the king of kings. But this is the last king in the Old Testament that is ruling God's people. And, and, and as far as a, an Israelite king and someone here from, from Judah. And so Zedekiah comes when Egypt is coming to their aid. And so Babylon... The Babylonians are fighting Egypt, and so they're not attacking the city of Jerusalem at that moment. So there's this brief pause in the action. And Zedekiah comes to Jeremiah and asks him to pray for Judah. But Jeremiah warns him, look, I'll pray, but destruction is imminent. We, you already know, it's already been prophesied. How many times have I mentioned this in a sermon in the last few months? How many times has Jeremiah prophesied? That Jerusalem would be destroyed and that, and that because of their sin and because of the blood that's been spilled and all the things that we've already mentioned, the worship of foreign gods, God's temple having foreign stuff to foreign gods in it, all of this, God is cleaning house. There's nothing that they can do now to change that. Now, they could repent, but these people won't even admit that they're wrong. And if they repented, then the biblical example shows us that God would relent because destruction hasn't come yet. Which this has a modern day principle for us, right? If we're still breathing, we still have an opportunity to repent. We still have an opportunity to turn to God. And so Jeremiah tells him, um, destruction is imminent. And then later in the chapter, Jeremiah is traveling to Benjamin during this safe time. He's traveling to 
the, the land of the tribe of Benjamin because that's where he has some family land that he has inherited. This is not related to the field he bought that we, we saw in another part of Jeremiah, but this is, he's just going there to get his land. And, and when he gets there, they accuse him of trying to desert, of trying to leave Jerusalem. And they're going to kill him. They put him in a house, the, Jonathan's house that has been turned into a prison. They put him in there and then eventually send him to the dungeon. And then while he's in the dungeon, Zedekiah sends for him and asks if there is a word from God. Now, again, this is ironic because, yes, there's a word from God. You've already heard it ten times. Zedekiah is wanting to hear something different, something that he wants to hear. And again, we can be hard on Zedekiah, which I, I mean we should. Right? God was hard on him. But at the same time, we need to see ourselves in this. How many times does God tell us to do something and we just keep coming back to him until we hear the thing that we want to hear? Which he's not going to change his mind, right? And so we have to be careful with judging Zedekiah in a self-righteous way. So Zedekiah sends for him, asks if there's a word. Jeremiah says, yes. What do you think the word is? The city's going to be given over to the Babylonians. And he, Zedekiah, is going to be destroyed. And he can there's time to repent, though. And Zedekiah's like, well, he's a little nicer now, by the way, than he's been to Jeremiah. And Jeremiah ask him, please don't send me back to the house of Jonathan that was made into a prison because they'll kill me. Please put me somewhere else. And remember earlier when we saw Jeremiah in prison in the court of the guard? This is where Zedekiah agrees to send him to the court of the guard. And then we get to chapter 38. And so, after all that summary, we're going to be reading Jeremiah chapter 38. And so if, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there or it'll be on the screen. And we're going to read verses 1 through 13 together. So in Jeremiah 38. Now Shephatiah the son of Maiden, Gedaliah the son of Pashur, Jukul the son of Shelemiah, and Pashur the son of Malchiah heard the words that Jeremiah was saying to all the people. So what are his words? Verse 2. Thus says the Lord, he who stays in this city shall die. Does Jeremiah sound a little like a broken record? Do you think he wants to be saying this over and over and over again? We already know the answer because we saw it earlier in Jeremiah. He says, all I do is spit out destruction. I don't want to say this anymore, but it's like a fire in my bones that I can't hold in. I have to speak your word. I have to say what you're telling me to say. And so, he who stays in the city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes out to the Chaldeans shall live. He shall have his life as a prize of war and live. So, again, if you surrender, you'll live. Verse 3. Thus says the Lord, this city shall surely be given into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon and be taken. Alright? Nothing new here. The only thing that's new is now they are very, very close in the timeline to this actually happening. Less than two years. Verse 4. Then the official said to the king, Let this man be put to death, for he is weakened in the hands of the soldier who are, soldiers who are left in this city, and the hands of all the people, by speaking such words to them. Now, I can see where they're coming from. If you put them yourselves in their shoes, and, and they don't believe that Jeremiah is speaking true prophecy, or they don't want to believe it at, at least, or it seems like most of them just don't care what the prophecy is, and they're going to fight to their death and in this case, they're fighting against God. But think if, if you're an American soldier and some, somebody stands up in our land and says, you might as well surrender to them because God is against you. And so surrender to this foreign enemy, the most powerful enemy in the whole world at this time. Think about if someone told us that. How would we feel about it? And so I'm not saying they were right. I'm just saying that we need to be careful about judging other people but without looking at the plank in our own eye. What would we do 
if we were in a situation like this. It's healthy to put ourselves in a situation like this. And so, here's this man who is speaking against the king, against country. What do they want to do with him? Let this man be put to death. He is weakening the hands of the soldiers. The soldiers don't need any more excuses of why to stop fighting or why to run away. He's weakening the hands of the soldiers who are left in this city. They don't have a lot left. And the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the welfare of this people. What's the irony? He's the only one seeking the welfare of these people. He's the only one telling them what is necessary for their lives to be spared. And God, in, in Jeremiah 29, says that the exile is the plan that he has for them. And it's planned for good. Right? It's planned for their welfare and not to harm them, not for evil. And so, a little bit ironic there. He's not seeking the welfare of the people, but their harm. Verse 5. King Zedekiah said, Behold, he is in your hands, for the king can do nothing against you. Does that sentence make sense? You think the king could have stopped them? He could have tried at least. Right? This shows that Zedekiah is a little bit of a coward in this moment because he knows what it's going to cost to do the right thing and he knows what it's going to cost to stand up and yet he's just saying hey like Pilate, i wash my hands of this I, I can't do anything about this but i don't know that that's true so they took jeremiah verse 6 and cast him into the cistern of malchiah the king's son which was in the court of the guard so they just they didn't have far to go right <laughs> in the court of the guard took him and dropped him down in this cistern, this, like a well. And they let him down by the ropes. And, and in the end of that verse, and there was no water in the cistern, but only mud. And Jeremiah sank in the mud. Now, this is setting up our third point, our final point of the sermon. But how many of you have ever felt like you did the right thing and you ended up sinking in the mud. How many of you have ever felt like you were living your life for God? And, and remember, there's not many faithful people here. When we're looking at God bless his faith and, and Jeremiah, we get a bunch of them right here in these few chapters. But we don't have many examples of faith outside of Jeremiah. And we've seen the Rechabites. We're about to see the faith of someone else. But this is hard to come by. Jeremiah is doing right. He is living his life the way he's supposed to. And where does he end up? In a city that is being destroyed. In prison in that city. In the court of the guard. And now in an empty cistern. That might be empty. But the bottom is still muddy. And so he's not just in the cistern, he is sinking in the mud of the cistern. Put yourself in Jeremiah's shoes here. How many times in the Bible do we see men of faith in a moment like this? So when we find ourselves in a moment like this, it's easy to despair. It's very easy to despair. And believe me, Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. That was his nickname. And so there's plenty of despair in Jeremiah and coming from Jeremiah. You know the book of Lamentations? Jeremiah wrote that. It's, a, it's full of lament of him crying out to God because of the disaster and the pain that he has experienced in his life. And that is being experienced, well, in moments like these that we're reading now. And so he's sinking there in the mud. Do you think God has forgotten him? He might feel like it. I don't know. We don't get much um, dialogue here or, or, or any kind of uh, information about how Jeremiah felt in this moment. And then verse 7. Jeremiah can do nothing for himself. He is sinking in the mud of an empty cistern in the court of the guard in a city that's about to be destroyed. He can't do anything. Verse 7. When Ebed Milik, the Ethiopian, a eunuch who was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern. Now, let me ask you something. Was this man from Judah? 
Was he from Jerusalem? Was he an Israelite? Why do we keep seeing these faithful people and they're not even a part of God's people? The only people we see in Jeremiah tend to be the people that are doing what God desires tend to be people that aren't even Israelites. This is insane. And here we see Ibn Melech, the Ethiopian, a eunuch who was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern. The king was sitting in the Benjamin gate. Ibn Melech went from the king's house and said to the king, My lord, the king, these men have done evil in all that they did to Jeremiah. He can see that evil was being done. What was the king? What did the king say when they told him what he was going to do? I can't stop him. Do what you're going to do. And here is this Ethiopian eunuch who obviously has a good enough relationship with the king to run to him and be able to tell him this. My lord, the king, these men have done evil in all they did to Jeremiah the prophet by casting him into the cistern. And he will die there of hunger. For there is no bread left in the city. So interesting, interestingly enough, when uh, Zedekiah in the previous chapter allowed for Jeremiah to be, to be sent to the court of the guard rather than back to the house of Jonathan, the prison, um, he, he also gave him fresh bread. He made sure that people brought him fresh bread daily for as long as it's left in the city, the verse tells us. Well, now here we're in the next chapter. And how much bread is left in the city? None. This is it. They've come to the end. If there's not bread left in the city, they're either going to starve to death or they're going to let down the walls or try to escape or something. And so we'll see that very shortly. Verse 10. Then the king commanded Ibn Melech, the Ethiopian, take 30 men with you from here. Why does he have to take 30 men? Because there were men who put him in there. A group of men. And so there, there's going to have to be men there to protect him and get him out. So he took the 30 men with him and, and went to the house of the king to a wardrobe in the storehouse and took from there old rags and worn out clothes, which he let down to Jeremiah in the cistern by ropes. So he, wanted, he cared so much about Jeremiah that he didn't just want him out of the cistern. He put soft rags and clothes around that rope and then used it for another purpose, as you'll see here. So that Jeremiah could get out of there, not just safely, but as comfortable as possible. Then Ibn Melech, the Ethiopian, said to Jeremiah, Put the rags and clothes between your armpits and the ropes. Jeremiah did so. Then they drew up with the ropes, drew up Jeremiah with the ropes, and lifted him out of the cistern. And Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. So he got out of his cistern to be able to go back to prison. I mean, <laughs> this is just, this is hard. How many of you have felt there where you felt like you were at rock bottom and finally something good happened, but it just brought you up enough to still be in the court of the guard? Or just brought you up enough to still be persecuted? Now, maybe, hopefully, not many of us have experienced persecution like this, right? But we all experience forms of spiritual oppression in our lives where whether it's because of our own disobedience, like the Israelites, or because of our obedience, like Jeremiah, where we feel that we are being maybe neglected by God, punished by God, whatever the case might be. But what is God doing while Jeremiah is helpless? He's, he's not faithless, I don't believe, but he's helpless. He can't do anything in the bottom of the cistern. He is raising up. He has brought, but even before Jeremiah was in the cistern, he brought this Ethiopian to Judah, Ibn Melech. And, and he has put it on the heart of this man that this is wrong, that this is God's mouthpiece. Why are they doing this to him? And so he delivers it through Ibn Melech. So, and think of the courage it took for him to go to the king who allowed this to happen in the first place, to say this is wrong. He's going to starve to death. There's no more bread left in the city. We have to do something. And so, thankfully, the king listens to reason and responds. So where are you in your life? Do you feel like you're in the bottom of a cistern? 
Because if you do, you can know that God is working things together for your good, for his glory, right now. While you're still sinking in the mud, he is working. We might not be able to see it, but he is doing it. And one day, just like Jeremiah, as he's drawn out of the cistern, we will be able to look back and think, thank you, God, for raising up Ebed-Melech, or however he chooses to deliver us in our time of need. God is always working. Now, Jeremiah is free to go back to prison, right? And, and so it's not like his troubles are over. We've got more of Jeremiah to go. But what we know is that sometimes we have to suffer for the glory of God. And when those times come, sure, if we're mature enough, then we should just praise God and go through the suffering and whatever happens to us is fine, whatever. But in reality, is that how we usually approach suffering? In reality, when we go through suffering, we might rejoice in that suffering. I hope we do. I hope we have the maturity to rejoice in suffering. But rejoicing in suffering does not mean liking your circumstances. Do you think Jesus, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, liked his circumstances? That he was about to go to the cross? If there is any way, let this cup pass. That's not liking his circumstances. Nevertheless, thy will be done. Not, not right, right? If the cup can't pass, if there's no other way, I'm going through with this. That is having hope and putting your glory, your, your, your hope and your faith in God to his glory. And that's what Jeremiah did. That's what so many of us have to do on a daily basis. Now, I'm going to summarize um, the, the rest of chapter 38. And then uh, I'm going to, we're going to read a few more verses to close out. So, at the, continuing with chapter 38, what happens is, is after Jeremiah is rescued, Zedekiah calls for him again. And this time, when he asks for a word from the Lord, what do you think Jeremiah tells him? Same thing. But he does say, you can surrender right now. If you give up right now, this city won't be destroyed. And guess what Zedekiah says? I'm afraid of the people. I'm afraid of what they might do to me. Basically, they just threw you in a well, dude. How am I supposed to not do this? But when peer pressure, culture, society, whatever, is against God's will, should we just go with the flow of culture? With the peer pressure? No. We stand up for what God's word says, no matter what the cost is. And Zedekiah wasn't willing to do that. And so, uh, Jeremiah's about to leave, and Zedekiah tells him, Hey, those people are, that just tried to kill you, they're going to ask what we were talking about. Don't tell them what we were talking about, because they'll kill you and me. Tell them this thing. And so Jeremiah tells them that thing. And then we get to chapter 39. And I'm not going to read all of chapter 39. But what you need to know is that this is it. This is the destruction of Jerusalem, the fall of Jerusalem. This is where the, 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 the city is destroyed. And history and scripture tells us that not only is the city destroyed, but the temple of the Lord is destroyed. Everything is destroyed. And, and, and this is in the ninth year of Zedekiah. This is 586 B.C. That these things are happening. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to skip down to verse 10. And Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard. So this is one of Nebuchadnezzar's right-hand men. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, left in the land of Judah some of the poor people who owned nothing. And gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. Now, is this out of the goodness of his heart or is this political? It's, it's probably political, right? But here's the irony again. Who is doing for the poor what God had told them to be doing for the poor all along? It's not the Israelites. It's the enemy. And so then we get to verse 11. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave command concerning Jeremiah through Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, saying, take him. This is Nebuchadnezzar's instructions for how Nebuchadnezzar should take care of Jeremiah. Take him. Look after him well 
and do him no harm, but deal with him as he tells you. I'm sorry. I've read this a hundred times and it's still just insane. Jeremiah has been suffering this whole time and his suffering's not over, but who is the first person that we're seeing in Jeremiah outside of Ebed Melech who is wanting to do good for Jeremiah? It's the foreign king who is destroying God's country and his people. It's the very thing that God had against his people, that they wouldn't do these things and that they wouldn't listen to the true teachers and the true prophets. And in Jeremiah, we only see a couple of good prophets and one of them's killed and one of them's Jeremiah. And look at what he's had to go through. And so he tells them, take care of him how he tells you to. Verse 13, so Nebuchadnezzar and the captain of the guard, Nebuchadnezzar, I just want one of these names. If I have any more kids, y'all can help me talk Rose into any of these. Uh, the Rabsaris, Nergal, Sar Ezer, Sar Azer, the Rab Mac, these are awesome. And all the chief officers of the king of Babylon sent and took Jeremiah from the court of the guard. So where was he? Still in prison. Then they entrusted him to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam son of Shaphan, that he should take him home. So he lived among the people. He's out of jail. Now, not ideal situation. Jerusalem has been destroyed. This isn't like he's getting to live in a mansion, but he's free from prison. It took God coming against his own people to free up what he wanted to happen. So what, what does this mean for us? Well, it means that we better be careful that we don't require God to come against us in order for him to do his will in our lives and in our time. Verse 15. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the guard. So while he was still in the court of the guard, this is the word that came to him. And he's free to do this now. Go and say to Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian. Remember him. He's the one that rescued him out of the cistern. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Behold, I will fulfill my words against this city for harm and not for good. Now, again, in the short term, for harm. In the long term, for good. But in the short term, what's going to happen is not going to be good in the destruction of Jerusalem. And they shall be accomplished before you on that day. But I will deliver you on that day, declares the Lord. And you shall not be given into the hand of the men of whom you are afraid. For I will surely save you, and you shall not fall by the sword, but you shall have your life as a prize of war, because you have put your trust in me. So what's the message to Ebed-Melech? God has not forgotten our faith, because he is faithful. Ebed-Melech delivers Jeremiah from the cistern, thinking that maybe this is going to cost him his life. And then Jerusalem is being destroyed, and what chance does this Ethiopian have? And yet, God comes to Jeremiah to give him word when the destruction comes, and now it has come, when the destruction comes, God is going to spare you. God has not forgotten your faithfulness. And so, for those of us who are Christians, who have put our faith in Jesus, who will stand before the king one day and hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. There are times in life when we cannot sense the presence of God. There are times in our lives when we feel alone, when we feel abandoned even. But God has not forgotten our faithfulness. And more importantly, Jesus' faithfulness. And the fact that through him, we can have a relationship with God. But even in the rewards of life and, and of faithfulness and following him, don't think that God doesn't see your suffering when it's on his behalf. We've seen this already in Jeremiah. When we suffer for doing good, God is there for us. Even when we don't see him at work, even when we're sinking in the mud of the cistern, he is faithful. 
He is working it together for our good, even in the midst of that moment. And so right now, maybe you're in the midst of, of, of a painful season. Maybe you're in the midst of, a, of a, a season of despair, or maybe you're in the midst of a season where you feel hopeless. So many are right now in our world because of all the things that are going on. So if you're there, you're in good company because there's a lot of us that are there, right? But we cannot forget in those moments that God is faithful and that he sees our faithfulness. Our faithfulness will be rewarded. Now, we're not saved. It doesn't make us, it, it, our, our works don't save us. Our works don't make God love us any more than he already did before we did those works. But are we rewarded for our good works? Yes. Now, do we turn around and take those rewards and offer them back to the Father and the Son as, as honor and glory for them? Yes. But as Christians, what should we want more than honoring and glorifying the Lord? And so God is there for you in those moments of trial, in those moments of chaos. They haven't caught him by surprise. There's nothing that we go through in life where God didn't already know. There's nothing that we go through in life where God hasn't already brought the Ethiopian to Judah to deliver us from that moment. God has been at work before he formed you in your mother's womb. Before he created the heavens and the earth, God was already at work preparing your salvation right now. And he can save you from the fires of hell through the blood of Jesus. And he can save you through the trials and the temptations that you are going through right now. But he will not take you out of that one moment sooner than he desires. Because he knows when to take Jeremiah. He knew when to take Jeremiah out of the sister. He knew that it would take Ebed-Melech and the 30 men to protect him, even if he got out. He couldn't get out. He was sinking in the mud. But God knew all the circumstances, and he knows all the circumstances of your life. Think about what bad has happened to you. God knew. And it's more than that. He worked it together. He knows what he's doing. And it's for our good and for his glory. We cannot forget that main theme in Jeremiah. However, it might not look like good right now because it's this disaster, Ra, which I didn't point it out, but you several times in these chapters. And so where are you right now? Are you putting your faith in God? Because God blesses faith. And if you say, yes, I have faith, point number one, do your actions prove that faith or a lack of faith? And if you, if the answer is a lack of faith, that's okay. There are seasons in our life where we're not as faithful as we should be. You know who is still faithful even when we're not? God. Go to him and confess your sin and, and, and ask him to strengthen your faith. But here's what I'm going to tell you. Why do you think these hardships exist? Part of the reason is to strengthen your faith. And how do we know if we're acting the right way? How do we know if, how are we measuring our faith? We're doing it by God's word. We're looking to his word to tell us how faithful we are being. And then we remember that God has not forgotten us because he's not forgotten our faithfulness because he is faithful. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. And I just pray that you would help us to turn to you right now. God, in our moments of, of suffering, in our moments of desperation, that we would cry out to you. And when you tell us something that we don't want to hear, that we would listen anyway. That we would not turn from truth. That whatever your word says, that we would take it to account and that we would ask you to shape our lives in accordance to your word rather than what we want or with, rather than our preferences. And God, I thank you that you are already working things together for our good. And even if it comes in the form of, of someone like Ebed Melech, someone that we least expected, a foreigner, not even of your people, um, whether it comes from Nebuchadnezzar or Nebuchadnezzar, Lord, we know that you are working things together for your glory. And for those who are called, in, called according to your purpose, Lord, you're working things together for our good. And so we put our trust and our faith in you. 
And we know that you will bless that faith. But God, our faith is weak. It's the size of a mustard seed. And so while we're thankful that that's enough and that's all it takes, Lord, we also ask that you would increase our faith. De decrease our reliance on ourselves. Decrease the way that the world affects us negatively. And increase our faith in you. Our trust in you. Help us to keep our eyes on you even when, when we're sinking in the mud of the cistern. Help us to put our trust in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, I hope that God's word has challenged you and encouraged you. It's a different type of sermon this morning. But there will be, uh, we're, we only have a few weeks left to Jeremiah. And these final weeks will be similar to this one because we've already covered so many of these things that there will be a lot of review and summarizing and us looking at things that we haven't looked at yet. And so hopefully this encouraged you. Hopefully this challenged you. Um, my encouragement to you is this. If you listen to this sermon, whether you're here today or online, and you want someone to pray for you because you feel like you were in the system, then please reach out to me, reach out to uh, Daniel, one of our deacons, someone, your Sunday school teacher, someone that you know loves you and will pray for you. Reach out to us and we will pray for you. And if there's anything we can do to help and it honors God, then we want to do that. And so I definitely encourage you to reach out to us. But the best thing that we can do that Jeremiah did over and over again that we see throughout scripture is we cry out to God. We go to him in honesty with what we're going through. And we ask him to help us to live faithfully in these moments and in these days. So thank you guys for coming. Uh, I'm excited that we're here. We, we have a few more people each week. And we are uh, still safely spread out with 12 feet. For those of you who are not here and wondering, we have plenty of seating left in here. And we can always remove tables and set up more chairs so that there can be more seating. We, we have more options to safely increase attendance here. And so if you're wanting to come back and you feel safe doing so, we don't want anyone who feels that they're in danger or who is, uh, fits one of the categories of people who are at risk. We, we want you to be safe and we want you to stay home as long as you need to stay home. And we encourage you uh, to do that. But if you're wanting to come and you feel like the time is right, then just know that we do have empty seats and that we can safely distance in here it's at this size, at this crowd level anyway. So thank you guys for coming. We'll, we'll talk to you all later.